2: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 39, a show that US President-elect Donald Trump called the best podcast ever, the greatest bigly. And then two minutes later said, it's a disgraceful show, podcasts used to be a safe space, we should apologise, before ten minutes later saying we were closest friends, but he spelt the show's name wrong. I'm Tina Duyeb, or as the Sun newspaper called me, the greatest comedian and podcast that ever lived or will live ever ever. And yes, I've just discovered that actually there is a really good way to use fake news for your own advantage. Just try it at home. I mean, take something you've just thought of, put it in quote marks and et voila, you could run an important election campaign. Or, as the Times said, a genius idea by a total hero. (laughs) They definitely said that. Definitely. It's not been an easy show to write this week uh, when global politics feels yet again like some sort of blurb for a terrible sitcom. At 7.30, it's faulty Powers, where on this week's episode, The Leaked Memo, it's revealed that the only plans Teresa has for Brexit is trying to make it take so long to work things out that rising sea levels destroy either the UK or Europe first so that she doesn't have to bother. Meanwhile, bumbling Boris upsets an Italian. Then after that, at 8.30, it's the fall and rise of Donald's fascism, where the president-elect avoids a fraud case with a dodgy payout, and then tries to find a safe space for musical theatre, but discovers everyone there is expertly trained in finding a space themselves. Then at 9pm, it's Only Fools, where blabby-mouthed conman Nige tries to get a peerage in the House of Lords, because he seems to have forgotten that he spent years rallying against the unlectable political elite. Meanwhile, former PM Tony decides again that he might come out of retirement because nothing unites a country like having a common enemy. But first, here's the 6 o'clock news. Ah! I really don't know why I even try. The Chancellor Philip Hammond has said that the country's debt is eye-watering and I don't think he means tears of joy or that the onion business is doing really, really well. Yet, despite this, the Treasury has announced that Buckingham Palace will get a 10-year refurbishment, costing the taxpayer £369 million. I mean, not each. I don't think. I mean, it's a pretty big building. Oh God. One palace official thought the British public would probably be fine with this payout as it would appeal to their sense of nationhood. What, paying a lot of money to house a foreign family and a massive home even though they don't contribute to society? Yeah, judging by the current climate, I'm sure everyone in the UK is bang up for that. Apparently the Queen is only there for a third of the year, so I say it should be used for Airbnb the rest of the time, especially because the owner manual reminding guests to regularly change the guards and not sit in the throne would be a bloody good read. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Theresa May told the Confederation of British Industry that businesses should be seen to work for everyone, not just the privileged few. And then she U-turned on the promise she made in July to allow workers to be represented on company boards. I get the feeling at a dinner party, Theresa May likes to say to guests to help themselves, and then she takes all the food into her room, locks the door and stuffs her face. The Prime Minister also suggested that she could lower corporation tax below 15%, which would really help that eye-watering debt, wouldn't it? And that the Autumn Statement, which I'll be looking at next episode, will include an extra £2 billion for science and research. And the good thing about that is it means that unlike Theresa May, at least some scientists will be able to come up with conclusions that are actually based on evidence. Theresa May's speech also involves saying that the Brexit vote gives Britain a chance to shape a new future, in the same sort of way a severe accidental house fire allows you to look for a new home. And that British businesses need to open up their minds to new ways of thinking, which based on the past week's revelations of a total lack of Brexit plans, sounds a lot like she's suggesting trepanning. The most entertaining moment of the mostly awkward and stumbled speech was when a moth nearly landed on the Prime Minister's head, but didn't. I guess there weren't enough bright ideas to attract it to stay. More on all of those things later in the show. Uh, We'll accept moths. No more moths. No, I'll be making holes in that wool over your eyes using just truth bombs, my friends. Sorry, I don't really know what came over me there um, thanks again for listening to the show pod new and old and hello to the super new listeners who joined last week after my chat with Ben Kissel uh, if you are an American listener or interested in US politics then hey there's many better podcasts you probably should be listening to but as of this week's show uh, there will be a new section that I'm currently calling thank fuck the Atlantic is there but you know I'm open to suggestions for better titles let me know um, also thanks to those of you who got in touch to say that you would like the partly big society section to return uh, for those of you who don't know about it it was a section of the show where I tried with really minimal effort to come up with fun ways to take part in local actions or protests for all of you to do without having to take too much time out of your busy, busy lives that I know you all have. Uh, These sort of actions range from dealing with, say, Stoke Gifford Council when they tried to charge runners to use the park uh, for a charity run due to wear and tear. Um, I thought it'd be fun to sort of email them asking how much they charge for other activities in the park, like practising robot dancing, which may displace gravel with terrible moonwalking. Or uh, things like sending Hampshire County Council party plates and hats when they use taxpayers' money to pay for the Queen's birthday street parties while shutting down Sure Start centres for families. So, you know, stuff like that. Um... However, one person has been in touch saying that they never took part uh, in the original ones because they didn't think that any of those things would actually make a difference, which is a fair point, because I'll be honest, Hampshire County Council probably still had all the Queen birthday celebrations and then used my plates to have cake on them as well. So if anything, I've just saved the money while they still ruin things. But let me open this up to to you guys. Um, If I start up Partly Big Society again next week, uh, would you want to send me local protests or things that you're angry about and suggestions of what me and maybe all of you can do to help change it that might actually work? Something that you think might actually make a difference. Um, Nothing illegal, please. Just fun stuff, which incidentally is also the name of my sex tape. Um, As always, all suggestions to... At Bro on Twitter, Parpol Group on Facebook or at PartlyPoliticalBroadcast at gmail.com. A um, couple of other bits before we get into this week's show, which is at normal volume because I'm not hiding in a hotel room this week. Woohoo! Um, first thing, uh, previous guest Ian Dunt from politics.co.uk has a book out called Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? The Facts About Britain's Bitter Divorce from Europe. So if you enjoyed my interview with him back in episode 31 in September, do check that out as I'm sure it's going to be brilliantly clear and informative uh second thing if you're in oxford or nearby and you listen to this before the end of the week i'm hosting a show at the old fire station on friday the 25th with an amazing lineup including political song champions johnny and the baptists and the amazing andy zaltzman uh host of the spiritual parent podcast To this show uh, the bugle which has recently thankfully returned is absolutely excellent do subscribe if you don't already um And the show on Friday is a fundraiser for the Fire Station and Crisis who work in partnership together to reduce homelessness in and around Oxford. So very, very worthwhile cause. Uh, And you can grab tickets to that from oldfirestation.org.uk or from the link on the gigs list on my website. And last thing. uh, Now, I don't really want to rant on this podcast show uh, because it's one of the things I really hate is smug ranting. I've spent the last few weeks, months and years just sighing at people's self aggrandizing Facebook posts or Twitter threads about what they think the problem in the world is based on what they had for dinner yesterday or what clever sketch they watched of a man who shouted things in the street. So they must be right. But of course, uh, of course, there is a but uh, as if this entire weekly podcast isn't just my poorly explained personal opinions anyway. But I have been quite fed up with the amount of commentary over the past few weeks that all the people uh, to blame for Trump, Brexit and the terrifying rise of fascism are actually all of those who oppose it and have just refused to listen to the divisive bigoted views of divisive bigots. Oh, it's Ramona's fault that we're not getting a good Brexit deal because they told us that we wouldn't. No, that doesn't. none of that makes sense. Look, I do believe a ton of people in the Western world and across the world are regularly not listened to. What are they saying? (laughs) I have no idea. Ha! I joke. No, look, I mean that since 2010 in the UK and really way before, austerity measures have constantly ignored the voices of all those suffering because of them and have deflected them by pointing the finger of blame instead of immigration or people supposedly being lazy. Now, it seems that the best way to ignore that the result of all this is people shunning the system, but also that the far right is sneaking through the cracks in the UK, US and all across Europe, is to instead point the finger at people who've been pointing at the cracks for years and years, saying, hey, see that? We should really plaster that up. It looks very dodgy. You know, admittedly, some of the people pointing at those cracks were very privileged people who only noticed them once they ruined the vintage decor of their gastro bubble, and I do get that. But I think that rather than point things at anyone who genuinely has the best intentions of others' well-being in mind, the fingers should be squarely pointed at media outlets who hyper-normalise situations that definitely aren't normal and present a lack of facts, and politicians who back that same narrative. Also, fingers should be pointed at racists who definitely are and aren't just someone who needs us to listen to them. I mean, trust me, if we all fucking sat down and decided to listen to these racists that say that we're not listening to them, you'd just think, wow, they really are racist. I wish I'd listened to something else like the new Tribe Called Quest album, which is amazing and genuinely makes me feel better. Oh, also, uh, I think the fingers should be pointed at people who wear red trousers. I mean, that doesn't help, does it? And that includes you, Santa Claus, so listen up. So. All I wanted to say, I didn't really want to rant, sorry about that, but on this show uh, I will, for the continual future, be happily pointing out politics of prejudice and fascism when they happen, and I refuse to be bullied that by doing that I'm somehow elitist or a snob. And yes, I am aware that I will be doing that as a white man who accidentally last week sang the entire chorus of A Tribe Called Quest's new track, We The People, in public last week, completely unaware that I really, really shouldn't do that, considering that these are the lyrics. You black folks, you must go. Yeah, brilliant track. But not really a great idea for me to karaoke along with, is it? Hmm. Right, on this week's show, I'm going to be speaking to former Met Police strategist, whistleblower, and now author James Patrick on the many issues within the UK police force. Uh, Brexit Fallout is back, and there's the new section on US happenings. But first... The Investigatory Powers Bill, a.k.a. the Snoopers Charter, a.k.a. Theresa May knows that you regularly search for that sort of porn where people sit their naked bums on cakes, has now been passed by both the House of Lords and the House of Commons and now just needs royal assent to become law. If you remember, way, way back in episode 12, I interviewed privacy law specialist Paul Bernal and he explained why this whole bill is a terrible, terrible idea uh, in terms of privacy rights but also how it's going to be an awful lot of work for internet providers which will mean that they'll probably have to increase costs, which basically means that it's going to invade our privacy and cost us more. Sounds great, right? While Labour succeeded in adding the need for judicial authorisation for intercept warrants and that mass surveillance powers can't be used against trade unions conducting lawful activities, Labour otherwise pretty much agreed on absolutely everything else with the bill, including allowing security services to hack devices. Which is mostly worrying, but also it does mean that if you're passing by the Home Office, they might be able to unlock your iPhone for cheaper than the Apple Store. The bill also means that security agencies will be allowed to do bulk hacking, which kind of sounds like how I eat dinner. But actually, bulk hacking means that they can gather information from a large number of devices in a specific location if they believe it will, say, aid terrorism investigations. And they'll be able to obtain bulk personal data sets, which are pots of data that hold personal information. Because these are usually gained in chunks, they often contain information of loads and loads of normal people who haven't been accused of anything at all. Oh, and internet service providers will have to store 12 months of everyone's data of what you looked at and when, which could be useful, I guess, if, like me, you can never remember what that funny mannequin video you just watched was called, so you can probably just drop the Home Secretary a line and she can send you the link. And, of course, all of this sparks concerns that this will lead to some sort of terrifying UK Stasi-like system where your every single move is monitored in case you speak out against the government or perhaps just ask what their Brexit plan is. But don't forget, All of this storing of information and invasion of your privacy that sounds like George Orwell drafted the bill is all for your safety. I mean, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear, right? You know, except that I've got nothing to hide, and yet I'm still fucking scared of killer clowns. So how does that work? UKIP continue to be a working guide on how not to do politics, as former leader Diane James has now left the party saying that it's time to move on. This of course proves the scientific theory that as soon as a UKIP member realises that time actually progresses forwards, they stop being a UKIP member. Diane lasted 18 days as UKIP leader before seeking her own independence and the new party leader is going to be announced on the 28th of November out of candidates Paul Nuttall, Suzanne Evans and John Reese Evans. Knuckle, uh, if you don't know him, wanted a burka ban and is the sort of man that do-not-eat signs are made for. Suzanne Evans thinks that educated, cultured young people are what's wrong with the country and John Reese Evans thinks that the death penalty should be brought back for paedophiles, but not if their victims looked 18. So, pretty tough choice for a leader, eh? I mean, I guess they're going to decide by seeing who's best at shouting racist abuse while Morris dancing or something. Former leader Nigel Farage is now spending most of his time representing the people by hanging out in Golden Lifts with a millionaire. And main UKIP donor Aaron Banks is talking about creating a populist anti-establishment movement in the UK to unseat Remain MPs in mostly Leave voting areas. Banks has already used the Trumpism of draining the swamp to describe it, which is an odd use for someone who's mainly funded the political career of Toad from Toad Hall. But if that happens, either this new populist party will make UKIP seem almost reasonable, which is quite dangerous, or UKIP are going to entirely run their course as a party. And all this comes as an audit reveals that UKIP misspent half a million quid of EU funding on Brexit campaigning, which sadly does sort of prove UKIP's point about the incorrect use of the EU's money, if only because they've done it themselves. If the external audit confirms that the money was used for domestic campaigning instead of EU activities, they could be forced to repay a lot of it while being refused any further money from Brussels. Makes you realise how, without the EU, they'd have really struggled to complain about it in the first place. Imagine trying to feed UKIP with your hands. Ouch. Let's hope that for UKIP, Farage and Banks they work really really hard to leave politics altogether and fuck right off. In an interview on BBC's The March Show, John McDonnell said that Labour would support the Conservatives cutting the threshold where people start paying the top rate of tax in the Autumn Statement. So you'd have to be earning over £45,000 a year before you pay 40% income tax and John McDonnell said that they'd support that because those that it affects are being hit hard by the Conservatives' mismanagement of the economy. Uh... I mean, obviously, uh, those earning the most were totally hit hard by austerity, right? I mean, can you even believe how expensive sourdough bread is now? Jesus! According to an article by Stephen Bush in the New Statesman, even if just one adult in a couple with two children earns £42,000 a year and the other doesn't work at all, they are only 1.6% worse off than they were in 2010. Which compared to absolutely everyone else in lower income brackets, and especially those without children, means actually, they've been hit the least. And if both parents earn just under £45,000 a year, they'll both get tax cuts, meaning they'll be getting a huge tax break. All in all, it'll just cost lots to implement and a loss in revenue. So those people aren't really being hit hard at all, more just sort of lightly tapped while they enjoy some lovely hummus. Corbyn and McDonnell, which I think when you say their names like that makes it sound like they should drive an 80s Ford Escort and stop crying. Well, they've said that they aren't bothered about income tax, but they do want to target corporation tax and tax avoidance, but really this statement on the income tax threshold just sort of sounds like they're going to help the Conservatives pass a bill which will cause more debt, which will probably allow more austerity, which overall makes you worry that we're back to having an opposition who seems to think the rules of the game are to score own goals. Last week, Amber Rudd made her first speech as Home Secretary to Police Crime Commissioners and Chief Constables in London, where she stated that the police need to employ more people from sectors such as the military, civil service, finance or business in order to make up police numbers. Because I don't know about you, but I love the comforting thought of ringing up 999 to say you're currently being burgled, only for a business advisor to turn up in helmet and uniform advising the burglar on what they could take that would be most profitable on the black market. The police force is currently in crisis, with numbers of officers falling by 17,000 between 2010 and 2015, and the number of support staff and support officers falling by over 20,000 in the same time period. Budget cuts by the government mean that the police funding shortfall could be as high as 1.2 billion in 2020, causing a further 17% reduction in staff. So it's only a matter of time before it's no longer hello, hello, hello when you need assistance from the police, and more, hello? Anyone? Hello? So this week I spoke to James Patrick. James is a former Met officer and a whistleblower. No, I don't mean a referee. Uh, Far, far braver than that. Yes, even at a Millwall game. Uh, James had to resign as a police officer in 2014 when he exposed a scandal in the police force that they were massaging the crime figures across the board. If you fancy pausing this and googling James Patrick and police, you'll find a number of articles all about it. And it was quite an incredible thing that he did. James is now a writer and his book about that period of his life called The Rest Is Silence has just been released and he still keeps a keen eye on all cop-based matters. We had a really really fascinating chat and at several times the information that James mentions makes me really think we had all better be working out our vigilante names pretty damn soon. So hi James, uh, thanks for talking to me. Um, you uh, resigned from uh, being in the Metropolitan Police Force in 2014, and I just wondered if you could tell the listeners of the podcast uh, why.
1: Yeah, I was um, I was a specialist analyst working at Scotland Yard. I'd been a policeman for ten years. Um, first worked at Derbyshire, and I'd ended up ended up at the Yard working on their sort of their highest level crime figures. And I'd been on a bit of a journey with whistleblowing and data manipulation in the police for a few years by then. And what happened was, in the course of of my job, I'd found, uh, um, should we say, some rather unpalatable links between policing and private industry. Um, And I'd I'd started to blog about this. And I got put on discipline for it. Um, But I carried on doing my job. And part of the issue that I'd raised was the manipulation of crime figures. To, to sort of justify um cuts to to police forces and police budgets and it fell into my lap as part of my day job um, a review of sexual offenses and robberies right and what, what i found really was that the met were under recording serious violent crime and um, sexual offenses by up to sort of 32 um, percent i knew i knew by then that this was sort of a concrete phenomenon i'd seen it On response team and now I was seeing it across the met with the serious crime figures as well so I raised it internally Um, their response was to lock me in a yard and tell me they were gonna um, make my life very difficult Um, so uh, maybe in me because I am awkward um, (laughs) I approached my MP and as it turned out he was the chair of the Public Administration Select Committee so I sparked a whole parliamentary inquiry which conclusively proved that the police had been fiddling the crime figures for the best part of thirty years and sort of deceiving the public and Parliament.
2: Wow. Yeah. So, so is that? Does, were they doing that so that it looked like crime had been falling? Was that what the yeah, reason for I mean, it?
1: Part part of it was the, um, the there was a bit they got rid of a few years back, which was performance-related pay for chief officers. Uh, that was obviously very, very uh, heavily influential on the fact that crime was reducing because that's how they got their bonuses. Um, But then it sort of became an ingrained part of the culture. It became part of the promotion process that you would need to show success. And the only way you can really show success in policing is through the figures, through reductions in crime, through increases in detections. So they just worked out a way to game the system. Um, The one thing I will say, the UK is not alone in this. America had been bang at it for years. and that's, that's still rumbling on now. Um, Australia has seen it. New Zealand has seen it to a lesser degree. It happens across Europe. I just read a very, very good academic paper from Sweden, the same thing. And I've not long been to Mexico, where I was asked across by the, uh, the government funded by the, the FCO. Wow. Um, to have a look at their crime figures. Exactly the same thing. But over there, instead of hiding robberies, they're actually hiding murders. So it's quite terrifying.
2: God that is absolutely terrifying yeah and and, and is this i mean you, you say it's happening all over the world but w- was this also a sort of result of increased paperwork and increased need for targets because that's something that I, I know a lot of um services like the police and and hospitals and everything have all needed in the last 15 years has been a a big increase in targets and making sure people hit percentages there,
1: there, was, there was there was a big drive um in policing for a number of years for crime to fall because it's politically very good. Um, And and what's happened over time is, obviously there was the issue with with chief officer bonuses and promotions being very, very closely tied to the crime figures. Um, But a few years back, they introduced this thing called the National Crime Recording Standard, which is actually a common sense manual. It tells you when a crime should be recorded and when a crime should not be recorded. The the upshot of this, was that recorded crime started to go up. Everybody panicked. So what they did was they looked for ways in the system that they could effectively fiddle the figures by making it not fit. So one of the things um, which which I sort of exposed was the use of these two categories called no crime and crime-related incident, um, where effectively a crime would be recorded and then subsequently deleted, or it would be classified as an incident only and kept off the books until uh, a successful prosecution had happened and then it would be brought on as a crime but with a detected figure with it um, the performance framework was largely the responsibility uh, of the government but at the same time the government didn't understand the impact of what they'd done and one of the first things that Bernard Jenkins as the chair did on the the day of the hearing um, was apologize quite extraordinarily to policing on behalf of the government which I don't think has ever happened
2: Wow. God, that's and and, and and has it changed? I mean, do you know uh, I mean um yeah, if, if anything's happened since you since you revealed like, this
1: there, there, there has been a clear impact. Um, if you look for the last three years, every time the crime figures come out, um, sexual offenses have increased by about thirty two percent, which is what I said, and violent crime has increased by about twenty percent, which is what I said. Um, so in terms of positives it means that a lot of the police forces are doing it properly. The the system of checks and measures and audits is still awful. Um, Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, they've never quite got their noodles around this. Um, and one of the interesting things, even as bad as they are at doing it, they did an audit on Greater Manchester earlier this year um, and it came out that even now, three years down the line, Greater Manchester Police had under-recorded crime to the tune of thirty-eight thousand offences in the last My twelve months. My God! So it still goes on.
2: That's horrific. Wow. I mean, I mean, and one of the. Uh because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is obviously has been a uh, um, uh, Home Secretary Amber Rudd made uh, a big speech to uh, sort of police commissioners this week um, and to uh, chief constables. And she said that the police service has a big responsibility to reform itself uh, as the Home Office doesn't run policing. Uh, the police do. So surely from your position, the idea of the police reforming itself probably isn't a good idea, I'd have thought.
1: Oh, good. Grief. Um, <laughs> there are so there are so many things that I, I, we need to cover on this one topic, but um, I think I think first and foremost, uh, the police reforming itself is the most laughable idea I've ever heard. Um, you, you've got back before the inquiry, the IPCC had only just concluded that um, this constant cry of organisational learning from police forces up and down the country um, had a hollow ring to it. Um, and that was because they're so used to hearing the police say, we've changed, we've changed, we've moved on. Um, you, look, you look, this all came out from the original McPherson report into the um, murder of Stephen Lawrence. Right. And one of the things which he always said, and he was, he was really, really on the ball with this, is that police leaders talk in a lot of fine words and have a lot of fine policy. But there's this big vacuous gap behind it. Um, and that's still the case now. The inquiry, I mean, the inquiry that I did, it was laughable. Um, at first, they all denied it. Then it became quite clear it was true. So then you had these really embarrassing, grovelling admissions from people. Um, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe <laughs> had to sit and admit that what I'd said was a truth that needed to be heard, having categorically denied it a week before. Um, and you've then got Lord Stevens, who was the commissioner before him who comes out and says, uh, this has been going on as long as I've been a policeman. Now, he'd retired. He was in the House of Lords by then. So you're talking 30-plus years. The idea that the police can reform itself without any kind of supervision is absolutely ridiculous.
2: Yeah, because didn't you uh, – am I right in thinking that you, you got some quite threatening letters from senior officers as well?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was um, I was put on restrictions. I was banned from speaking to the public. Um, I was banned from the use of social media. Uh, I was removed from the evidential chain. And what sparked it all off? um, All all that aspect of it before the parliamentary inquiry is i had been raising some quite pointed concerns about the, at the time, the the Windsor reforms. Um, Tom Windsor is now the Chief Inspector of Constabulary. Right. And if you go just at a very basic level on this stuff, A lot of this has already been covered publicly, but I found it mind-boggling at the time. I mean, this guy, he he worked for a law firm. He'd been a train regulator, no experience with policing. His law firm had just finished representing Group 4 Securities in uh, a multi-million pound privatisation deal with one police force, which had (laughs) piggyback clauses for other police forces when he was appointed to do this independent review of police paying conditions right now when his when his recommendations started to come out it didn't take very long to um discover that they were an exact mirror of a policy paper which had been written by um nick herbert who was then the i think he was the crime and justice minister back in 2007 as part of the tory election manifesto um, and the recommendations he made were almost point for point, word for word, the same thing. So the, this entire concept of the government did this. They went ahead. They got what they wanted. They used a, a semi-independent person. Then they appointed him effectively to, to, to work as part of the checks and balances. Now, Tom I've met um, is a very, very quietly mannered, softly spoken. He's sharp. He's very sharp. But one of the things which I found in the blogs through FII requests, and I'll repeat it in the book, which is out on Saturday, um, there was a lot of communication between him and the Home Office, which sort of points to confirmation that he was acting on instructions rather than independence. Right. But th- this is the kind of thing. That what what the, the Home Office very cleverly did, um, especially in installing police and crime commissioners, is it's this big, this ideological thing. You you detach centralized control from government. And it, they've done it before. It's, it's, a, it's a model which works. Mm. So what they've done, they've put police and crime commissioners as a buffer. Okay, So now you've got these locally elected, locally accountable people um, who are responsible for policing in the individual areas. Now, when the government says they want something done, these guys have to do it. But when something goes wrong, the government have just given themselves this comfort uh, of having this plausible deniability where they can just go, no, it's not us. So when I hear Amber Rudd say things like, I want the police to reform themselves, it's just it, it, it's it plays to the absolute naivety of people about what goes on in, in Westminster. And actually, the police leaders who, who refuse to accept their flaws to the point of ridiculousness. Um, and now the ones in charge of fixing it. And all they've got is still these hollow, ringing, empty, fine words and very, very little substance to them.
2: It is interesting. It is, as you say, it's, it's pretty much what the government are doing in every area. It's what they've been doing in education with academies and free schools, and it's what they're doing with NHS trusts. Um, mm. You know, it's just removing responsibility from themselves and accountability. Um, do you think that. I, I mean. The way that they're doing this, um, you know, uh, they're currently looking for a new police commissioner for the Met and, uh, and Amber Rudd's kind of opened it up saying uh, people from Australia or New Zealand or Canada and America can all apply. Does that mean that there's a, a lack of interest in people wanting to apply to do that job because they understand how much blame will be placed on them?
1: I, I think that there's, there's a few points on this. Um, while it's, it's everybody always focuses on the Met, um, which is possibly the worst example of policing in the country that gets the most attention. Um, other forces um, do have really good police and crime commissioners who've already advertised, who've already used um, this new, this new capability to look for the best possible leadership talent. Lincolnshire were the first force to do it. And um, their PCC, a chap called Mark Jones, who is brilliant. Um, he, very, very forward-thinkingly advertised for international applicants um, because what he wants is the best for Lincolnshire. Now, sure. in terms of the general principle of it, I think it came about post, uh, post-London post riots in 2011 um, where the Home Secretary became seized with the idea of taking Bill Bratton on. And I think she would have done it, but for the fact it wasn't legal at the time.
2: Right. Who was Bill? Bill Bratton was...
1: He was the chief of the NYPD. Right. Um, I mean, he, he he, he, would have got a lot of respect in the Met. It was a very, very difficult time for London. It would have been a breath of fresh air. And what, what we got instead was this strange, leathery-faced man <laughs> from up north who rode in on a white horse um, and <laughs> has just managed to scrape through, I think, his turn by the skin of his teeth Um leaving on the bitter note of, of Operation Midlands, which was the Enrique's inquiry into um, the VIP paedophile investigations. Right. Um, it, it's actually very sensible to look for, for international applicants because there is a lot of talent out there in the world that, that we could use more effectively. The one problem with it, and this is the big the big problem with it, they don't come from the same framework of legislation. So uh, American policing is so completely different to UK policing. To get somebody like Bratton up to speed on what he actually can and can't do, you'd risk this entire period of, um, of Wild West policing because the, the sort of the sycophantic, ambitious middle management are going to do what the boss says and, and not be challenging him, which, which is always what happens. So I don't think she, she's sort of wrong to plug for international candidates, but there are a lot more issues to it um, than, than a straightforward it's a good or a bad idea.
2: Sure. And and I'm guessing along very much the same lines is her call for the police to recruit people from other professions to become superintendents, which I, I suppose I had that, that hearing that. I thought, but these people won't know anything about policing. <laughs> so, oh, yeah,
1: th- this I mean, this this was um, those uh, sort of pre-written um, Nick Herbert, Tom Windsor reforms. I was talking about direct entry was something which was well on the list, and it's because um, there's this absolute obsession that uh, policing traditionally is um, is almost a sort of blue collar um, profession. Yeah, Do you know what I mean it's not academics that go into policing. Although I will touch on this in a second. Sure. Um, so, so what you tend to get is people like me who come from normal backgrounds. Lower end of the, the sort of social scale, but we're really passionate about making a difference to people. Um, and you progress within the ranks. Now, what that, that obviously has led to, because the promotion system itself has at times been completely ineffective, the wrong people have been promoted. So you've ended up with a, an entire caliber of people who are out of their depth. Um, and what they do know is policing they know the law they know the framework they know everything but they don't necessarily have the managerial skill um from the sort of the elitist point of view it's just not good enough to have people in senior positions who aren't that qualified so opening up to direct entry is almost this military model um which doesn't sit well with me in terms of uh, of british policing anyway because we're not a militarized service We're, we're actually a public service um the, the problem with it being, you have people come in and they've been like, "What managers at Marks and Spencers," I suppose is the is is the frequently quoted thing. Right. Um, they know absolutely naffle about rolling around on the floor with someone who's just tried to kill their wife. Um, yeah, and they, they're going to give poor direction. They're going to give bad direction, um, even with senior leaders that have been in policing for a very long time. When you've got specialist knowledge, they don't look upwards and they don't look sideways. They look downwards because they know where it is. People who come in, and this was quite a public thing, with the attitude that frontline police officers are no better than bin men, are not going to be seeking the advice from the appropriate places. And that is where the model will fail
2: yeah it, it, it's uh it just i mean it struck me obviously you sort of mentioned marks and spencer's managers which i i'm sure are very very good at their job but that is quite uh you know i'm sure it's not just policing it's the best It's marks and Spencer's policing but it does feel like it, it's it's not uh transferable skills in a lot of sense and i think uh, amber rudd mentioned people from the finance sector and to me that doesn't sound like someone that would be good in a situation where you'd really need a police officer uh
1: no and, and this is the thing i mean I'll give you, give you the prime example. There was a guy who retired um, from Camden as a superintendent. Uh, Roger, his name was. On the, the night uh, when the London riots came into Camden, um, this fantastic guy wasn't sat in his office shouting at people down a phone. He was using a clipboard as a shield because he didn't have a shield and he was on the front line with everybody else. And that, that is what you need. Yeah. You don't need anything else. Um, and you're just not going to get that from people who have been brought up in the safety of an office. And the other thing as well, police officers, because the environment is quite harsh, can be a bit forthright. So sure. um, it's a discipline service. Sure. But if you need to be told to F off because you've made a bad decision, you're going to get told that. And I don't think people that have been parachuted in are going to appreciate that whatsoever. And that's just going to drive tension. Um, You've had this sort of blow up recently with this um, graduate entry scheme they've been running called Police Now. Right. And what it's, what's kind of happened is they've run this reduced six-week course for people.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work.
2: So start looking in the right place with LinkedIn. You can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash/achieve today.
1: And told them policing's not a career. It's like a two-year stepping stone. Come in, you can cherry pick all the fun stuff, and then you'll go out to your team. And it's been quite divisive because they've had a very, very narrow view. Of of what policing's all about. They've been exposed to the sexy stuff, which when you're run ragged, you don't have time to. And when they've arrived on teams and found what reality is, um, I, I'm well aware of situations where it's almost come to blows. Yeah. So so the whole sort of the the elitism division in policing doesn't work. Um, it's not it's not a suitable thing. And while I'm all for talent, like I said about the international leaders. It's going to need some broader thought because it's it's just not going to function um, in its current format.
2: Sure, I mean it, it has always struck me as a job that you, you need to do because you want to do it and you have the appropriate yeah. skills to do it. Um, one of the other things that Amber Rudd also was uh, was talking about the other day is that there's there's uh, sort of the diversity is still a constant issue in the police force and the proportion of yep. female and BME officers is quite low. Um, I mean, is that is that a, a problem? Is that something that's likely to be fixed?
1: Um, I, I'm not entirely sure it's likely to be fixed, but it's definitely a problem. Um, I think this was only raised a few months back again um, by a guy from the Black... I think it was the um, Black, Police super, super, Black Police Association. I think he was a superintendent or a chief super, but he was highlighting some really specific issues um, in terms of the failures to sort of recruit and drive forward um, for for the sort of the BAME candidates and, and for women in particular, um, I'm not sure that policing can fix this. This this problem's been on the radar for uh, what what we're we talking now, 25, 30 years, mm. um, and there is this inexplicable mountain in the middle of of the entire promotion system where it doesn't work. Um, I think largely it's to do with the fact that discrimination is still a problem. You don't need to look very far. I mean, you can look at cases from the other year, like, uh, Carol Howard. Right. Um, she successfully took the Met for discrimination. Um, it's, it's a case that I wish people would go and Google to get a feel for what still goes on in policing. Um, there's another really good guy called Kevin Maxwell. You can find him on Twitter. He had a pretty brutal experience. Um, what
2: with was the he, and Just to go back a bit, what was the Carol? I, I don't know the Carol Howard case. What um, it was? It was
1: um, a really blatant and overt um, discrimination case. Um, she took them to, to a tribunal, and one I can't remember the details off the top of my head. But she is um, she's a great and very strong person, and. Um, quite rightly the met were punished for it same with kevin um kevin's case um it was (laughs) i mean not only was is kevin black but um he's he's a gay man as well um so he he sort of suffered a bit of a double fate he won his case the met then contested it pretty much ruined his life lost again um And I think they were still contesting it up until very recently. Um, just they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't leave it be, but the, the sort of the, the attitude of the deputy commissioner, Craig Mackey is still very much along the lines of we don't have a problem. We're not talking about it. Um, and as long as that's the sort of the, the pervasive angle, the organization takes because it is a defensive organization. Um, it's never going to solve these issues. So I think the Home Secretary at the moment is daydreaming um, in, in respect of that situation improving any time soon.
2: Sure, I because mean, it also struck me as, as that is something that's hugely important, but there seems to be a problem in getting police officers in general uh, and the numbers of sort of police officers have hugely declined. I think yeah. it's over the last sort of, six years, which I know is partly due to cuts and stuff, but yeah. uh, that's a big issue, isn't it? That there's just not enough police officers overall.
1: No, there aren't. There aren't enough cops. I think, what, what have we lost now, 25,000, 26,000, something like
0: mm. that?
1: Might be that high. Um, but, I mean, this it was quite clear this was going to come. It was quite clear this was going to come. Part of, the, part of the horror of the whole crime stats inquiry is that the reduced crime had been used by the government as a formula to sort of reduce police budgets. So what they then had to do was <laughs> come to the understanding that they'd actually shot themselves in the foot um, and denied it for years by perpetuating this thing where we don't need as many resources because crime is going down, look. And when the resources started to go, because the forces no longer had budgets, um, they suddenly went, oh, no, we're now having to record crime properly and we haven't got enough police to do what What are we going to do? And the Home Secretary went, it's your own fault? Um, <laughs> and it's just, it's not going to get any better. There, there isn't the money there. It is possible to police smart. I mean, you look at the... Don't look at the Met. The Met's a horrendous model. It's just waste on waste. Right.
2: So um, why, because why, why you mentioned earlier that the Met is the worst uh, The worst sort of group to look at. Why was that?
1: Um, it's bloated. It's over-budgeted. It's convoluted. It's complex. The resources are poorly used. You've got coppers in the Met who you've got anything up to 16 years service who don't know how to do basic investigation because of the way the Met segregates um, different jobs, right. which just makes it horrendous. I walked in um, Camden Borough for my first shift after I came from Derbyshire I used to work at a place called Pear Tree which was the busiest nick in the county Right. Um, sort of pound per pound Camden there's no more incidents per head but instead of it being a sergeant and eight police officers it was um, two inspectors, twelve sergeants seventy five police officers uh, about fifteen of which I never met because they just disappeared into the ether on various attachments and stuff wow um, but it's just, it's, it's a hugely mismanaged organisation. When I was doing the specialist um, analytical stuff, I used to look at overtime spends and, and budgets and uh, outstanding rest days. And it is, it's just blatant mismanagement. Blatant mismanagement.
2: Wow. Um, and then that's an a, excess is... cost, I'm guessing, that's going into the Met that could be used in other parts of the country.
1: Yeah, but you can't, the thing is, the Met is so big and unwieldy and there was always sort of thirty-two different ways of doing everything for the different boroughs, and this is without even considering the specialist operations commands. Um, it's it's just it's 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 too big to even begin to to look at fixing properly. But conversely, if you look at the smaller forces, um, when I joined Derbyshire, they'd not long been off Home Office special measures. They started every year with a significant budget deficit of millions of pounds, but because That was the environment they'd operated in. They'd become incredibly effective. They never messed around with resources. They never overspent. They were incredibly shrewd because they had to be. One of the best forces in the country now is Lincolnshire, which has got one of the smallest budgets, um, and yet they've still got to find, I think, an extra saving of about 5 million quid over the next couple of years. Um, But they are uber-efficient. They're so, so on the ball. I know a couple of the people up there. And as a sort of, if the police wanted to look as a national hub of excellence, where they can actually go and learn a trick or two, they need to be looking at the smaller forces, not the big ones. The big ones are just a mess. A mess.
2: We'll be back with James in a minute. But now on the podcast, The Express said was so brilliant and correct about everything it ever said. We set fire to all copies of our shitty paper to give up telling lies and work at a food bank. They definitely said that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Anyway, now on the podcast, it's time for. Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Brexit fallout. And oh, what Brexit Fallout there is this past week. The consultancy firm that constantly sounds like a character in a Tennessee Williams play, Deloitte, had a memo leaked that they say was intended for an internal audience, which I guess means their own company, not that they were going to eat it or push it up their butt. However, the memo made its way to the Times and it stated that the government had no plan for Brexit because, you know, up until we heard that we were all so sure that Brexit means Brexit was the greatest plan ever made since Richard Attenborough's character in The Great Escape. I mean, if Squadron Leader Roger Bartlett's plan had of course just been let's all escape by escaping, obviously. Aside from that not at all shocking revelation, the Deloitte memo said that an extra 30,000 civil servants would be needed to cope with all the additional work Brexit would cause, and Whitehall alone is working on 500 Brexit-related projects. This seems like quite a large estimate, but the UK would need a lot more customs officials if we leave the EU's customs unions, possibly 5,000 additional staff at least. Then the immigration control would have to be expanded, especially as there's been a reduction in staff for the Visas and Immigration Directorate in the last few years. How many more staff would they need? Well, it's very difficult to say without knowing what sort of Brexit we're having. And where will we get all these additional staff from, considering it takes years to train these sorts of people up? Well, funnily enough, they might have to come from, yeah, you guessed it, Europe. <laughs> Theresa May said that the memo was, of course, nonsense and Audi with a face Ian Duncan Smith said it was bogus. And I guess he would know considering his wealthy experience with bogus facts. But the Institute of Government think tank also said preparing for Brexit would be unsustainable for some government departments unless more resources are handed to them in the autumn Statement. God, this taking back control is bloody expensive, isn't it? And as for the lack of plans themselves, the Prime Minister assured businesses today that businesses would avoid a cliff edge, but didn't clarify whether that meant she supported a traditional deal to cover the UK leaving the EU until a new trade deal was found. So who knows what avoiding a cliff edge actually means, as it could just be that the government will put up a few badly placed warning signs and hope to loot the pockets of the bodies on the beach afterwards. Also, the Prime Minister didn't take into account how costs to cover Brexit may remove funding for business initiatives and how damaging it may be to businesses if freedom of movement is stopped as well. Theresa May said there was no need for running commentary on government Brexit plan, which I guess is because it's very hard to keep commenting on absolutely nothing happening. We all saw the BBC's royal coverage of Princess Charlotte's birth. God forbid we have that for two years, while Nicholas Witchell dithers outside Parliament having to mention every time a pigeon appears just to stave off boredom. Meanwhile, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has proven yet again why he should have to do all international meetings trussed up like Hannibal Lecter, as when speaking to a Czech newspaper he mentioned that the UK will have to leave the EU customs union. No other member of government has mentioned that remotely before, and that would be quite a big deal if that's true, as the customs union prevents the UK from forming trade deals with other countries as we'd have to keep the EU's common external tariff. So while it would mean we couldn't bring back half as much booze from trips to Calais as you'd like, if free movement goes as well, then getting to Calais might be such a faff anyway that we'll all be better off doing home brewing and drinking ourselves to death with something you made from old potatoes that taste out Ed Paul's dances. The government have denied that any decision on the customs union has been made, and the president of the Euro group of finance ministers suggested that as Boris also thinks the UK could stay in the single market, it would then be impossible to leave the customs union. Basically, Bojo is making it up as he goes along, which seems to be the basis of what he does with absolutely everything from his political career to his hair. My favourite slam of the week was from Italian Economic Development Minister Carlo Calenda, who was told by Boris that the UK should get what it wants from Italy, otherwise they're going to lose a lot of Prosecco exports to the UK. Calenda responded by saying that the UK will lose some fish and chips exports, but the difference is that Italy will lose exports to one country, while the UK will lose them to 27. Oh, Mike dropped! Prosecco everywhere! And Italy don't give a flying fuck because chances are the Prosecco they sell us is their worst stuff anyway and now they have something to clean the drains with. 60 Conservative MPs are demanding that they leave the single market, which sounds a lot like they're just very lonely. This is quite a change of tune from the Leave side who, before the referendum, were making the case for staying in the EEC like Norway. But of course, were they to follow that train of thought, that would mean having conviction and sticking to an opinion, which, as we've seen since June the 24th, isn't really their thing. Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell said that Labour back Brexit and won't be seeking a second referendum and won't block triggering Article 50, saying that Labour will push influence over terms and conditions of how we leave by using moral pressure to influence the government. Because, yeah, you know, moral pressure has totally worked before, right? I mean, why not just read Aesop's fable about the goose with the golden eggs during PMQs and I reckon Theresa May will be a socialist in no time. Many Remain voters are angry that Labour won't oppose Brexit, especially as 63% of Labour voters voted to stay. But if Corbyn is unelectable because he can't appeal to non-Labour voters, and then him and McDonnell appeal to mostly non-Labour Leave voters but turn off Labour voters, is he more or less electable? I mean, why try and fail to please everyone when you can definitely upset all of them at once? Similarly, according to Labour MP Clive Lewis, the Labour Party's stance on post-Brexit free movement is that only people who are members of trade unions should be able to come and work in the UK. And this, of course, means that the Conservatives will say that Labour wants every trade unionist to come to the UK forcing up immigration figures, and Labour voters who are pro-free movement are going to be angry about this as well. The only thing I can think of is that Labour's political plan overall is to just embrace reverse psychology. I mean, maybe if they all hate us, they'll all vote for us. Well, I guess that is almost how the US election worked. Hmm. What this does mean, though, is that even though the SNB and Lib Dems are going to likely vote against the triggering of Article 50, Labour and the Conservatives are going to mostly vote for it, meaning that it should definitely happen next year. Or not. I mean, at this point, who really knows? God, it's such a shame Samuel Beckett died in 1989, as he'd have a new play about this in minutes. Let's go. Yes, let's go, says the government. They do not move. And now, back to James. James. And is is part of that as well? I know. Um, uh, again, going back to the sort of speech, speech, there, there's a and they've mentioned this lots before. This idea of having a big national kind of ICT kind of internet a hub for all police to use across the country, but it it, it does seem like. Uh, also, what I've heard before is there's, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of different systems and bad communication. Would something like that actually help? And would that help kind of reduce costs? I, I think. I think. the the sort of the
1: the contest has always been and i'm probably going to swear now
2: (laughs) that's fine you can swear all you like on this podcast Um, (laughs) there
1: there are two massive things which impact on policing. number one is the sort of the ambitious power hungry middle management who exists in a world of bullshit bingo and they must have a project um because they have so many projects it's been impossible for anyone to actually coordinate what on earth is going on so um trying to, to collate any sensible national way of doing anything has been incredibly difficult up until now. And the, the college of policing, I mean, it's just, it's a waste. The, the only interesting thing they've done is um, try to engage in a financial deal with Saudi Arabia, despite the obvious human rights risks. Yeah. Um, so they're just a waste of an organization. Um, uh, so you've got this, but then the police ICT thing, um, if, if they actually sat down and did national procurement, right? And I mean, really, the simplistic version of it, which is all police forces buy the same pens, notebooks, um, computers, cars. Everybody has the same fuel card system, right? Everyone buys the same shirts, the same fleeces. You put that out to tender. That's a saving of hundreds of millions of pounds. That's all they ever needed to do. It, you look at the IT project waste, which justifies, in a way, the ICT projects, because they like they procure and then shelve projects for millions and millions because they're not actually what they wanted, or they've been missold it, or they didn't understand what they're asking for, or they spec it wrong because they're idiots. <laughs> um, and like the ICT thing, it's a good idea in principle, but then I looked at their their first one of their first tweets today, which released the sort of the alpha version of their website. And rather than be something special and engaging and a sign of things changing, it's written in absolute police managerial cod shit. It's it's incomprehensible buzzwords and shite. And it just means that it's not going to work. It's going to end up being another one of these failed middle management projects that that no one's ever managed to to get right so it's the right thing to do but again as with everything else it comes down to delivery being awful
2: and probably i'm guessing will cost an awful lot of money as well to whoever's providing the system
1: because because now what we're doing instead of having these 43 police forces wasting a couple of million each um what they're going to be doing is like there's going to be like a big central pot of crap where, where they just sort of throw money into it, like that old Tom Hanks film, um, and eventually it just collapses around their ears because it's mismanaged. That is how it's going to go. That's how it's going to work. It's, it's one of those things that the writing was on the wall from the minute somebody suggested it. It's actually, um, and I'm not a massive advocate of outsourcing, not for policing, but what they should do is actually work out what the nominal budget for each police force is for these things and go, right, uh, Price, Waterhouse, whatever your names are. Um, you want a project? You want to be involved in policing? Put a tender in for this. Here is your budget. Here is what you must deliver. Here is a timescale. If you don't do it, you pay the money back and you get a penalty. And it will get done. But instead, we create these weird little monopolies and empires um, and sort of expect people not to mess around with them, which it just goes against the very grain of um, all human nature.
2: So, I mean, it, it, what I've realised with quite a lot of the uh, interviews I do on this show is that uh, you get to the end and go, oh, it's all quite bleak. Um, so, is I mean, do you see any any hope that the police force is going to get better and more efficient and they're going to get more people on board? Or do you think the way that it's going now is just, uh, I, I don't know, leading I, to more privatised security, I guess? Where, where, will, it, where will it end?
1: <laughs> I, I know a lot of really good coppers. I know a lot of really good coppers who against the odds and against their own wishes for sanity are going to stay and stick with it and continue to make a difference. And that really in policing is all that ever matters. I think the biggest challenge um, faced at the moment is the changing sort of social demographic. It's the this massive lurch to the right. And I think there have been some interesting challenges which have been financial so far um there's been a bit of a dent to morale uh i I think the the true test of the good people that are left um is is going to come from the changes in the political climate so i'd love to give you some good news and the good news is there are still good people in the police and they do do a good job a fantastic job looking after victims investigating the most horrendous things um but but in the changing world that we live in um i think the police are going to be asked to do some pretty unpalatable things in the future unfortunately
2: do you, do you think that's partly why and i'm probably leaping to uh, conclusions here but do you think that's part of the reason why say for example the government refused to look into the Orgreave situation
1: there's um I, yeah i mean i think the the way that was dismissed um I, I believe if the, it's hard to know what's true in the news now, you know, this. Sure. Um, <laughs> in the post-truth world. Um, but Orgreave, I believe Van Rudd, also um, the allegation goes, didn't even um, read the background documents before dismissing the inquiry. Um, I think if we look, if we look to the, the, the sort of the history of the eighties and replay it a little bit, we're looking at, cuts to benefits, we're looking at increases in unemployment, we're looking at the government um, fiddling figures, we're looking at inflation, we're looking at uh, a situation where society is being put under an immense amount of pressure. This time we've got the added benefit of of Brexit, which has fundamentally divided the nation um, on an almost 50-50 split. Um, There is going to come a time, should... For example, the Italian elections go um, to to the parties of the right, followed by the French, and with Trump in the White House, strange apricot hell beast that he is. <laughs> um, I I I I think it's going to come to a head at some point where society is going to overspill into protests and potentially violence, and at that point. The police are going to have to do a lot of soul searching because they they may well be um, they may well find themselves in a situation where they're being asked to do something they don't want to do. That's exactly what happened um, in the early 80s. You can see it coming a mile off. Now it's like the the slowest the slowest haymaker in the world. Um, and I know that a lot of my friends who are still in the job are quite twitchy about it. Um, I, I I honestly feel that a lot of them are gonna leave because they they won't wanna be a part of anything like that.
2: No, I'm sure I'm sure it'd be a horrible thing to be um pushed to do. Um yeah. I'm I'm holding out uh, for superheroes. That's my um that's what I'm going for at the moment. There's gotta be one be at some preference. point. Sorry? Would
1: it be Batman or Kick Ass?
2: Um. Uh, no, good question. Probably kick ass. He's more interesting. Uh. You know. I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure someone will come up with something. Um, what, what, we I mean, uh, what I was going to ask is, uh, obviously, there's there's yourself that people could follow on Twitter for information. But it, can you recommend other organisations or or websites or people that uh, our listeners could follow if they're interested in kind of keeping up to date with what's happening in the police yeah, force?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, really, really good. Uh... Inside police commentators, um, I struggle. I struggle. I struggle with some of that now, and I think some of the lessons that have been learned after uh, what happened to me on social media, um, a lot of people stay away. I'd massively recommend Richard Horton. Um, he was. Back in 2009, he was the very famous blogger called Night Jack, the anonymous police blogger who was disciplined by his force. Uh, he went on to win the Orwell Prize. Um, he is fantastic and he now operates with the full sanction of his force. He can be found on Twitter. Um, his Twitter handle is IOFIV, his personal. He's exceptional. He's a very, very clever chap. Very good to speak to. Um, Kate Moore. Um, She's ex-police, she is very very astute and she doesn't follow the sheepy view so you'll always get something um, alternative from Kate but very 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 interesting. A lady called Rachel Rogers based down in Dorset, she stood as candidate for PCC, she's exceptional. Um, Policing Insight which is run by a chap called Bernard Ricks, fabulous a huge wealth of knowledge about police and crime commissioners and policing in general. And if you want the sort of the, the lighter side, um, yeah, the lighter side of being a copper or, um, being an ex copper, I would recommend a chap called steel river boy. Um, you can call him Steely (laughs) or Boscarelli 55, who is an absolute gem of a guy. Cool. Um, You will find some other people. They're very shouty. Um, And obviously, I'll I'll swear my head off, but I'm normally talking about all sorts of nonsense. In particular, Donald Trump. I, I love trolling him.
2: Thanks tons to James for chatting with me. I hope you found that as insightful as I did. And a big, big thanks to Stephanie, who put me in touch with him as well. Um, James is on Twitter at J And his book, The Rest is Silence, is available in all bookshops. And who am I to judge whether they are good or bad bookshops? Uh, though I would say uh, that if you are going to look for his book on an internet bookshop, uh, then his author name is JJ Patrick, which makes searching for it just a little bit easier. Next week, my guest uh, is going to be helping explain what the autumn statement is all about. But again, if there's anyone that you'd like me to interview or any subject you'd like me to interview someone about, please do let me know at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Parpol Bro Facebook group or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. For this week's question of the week, I asked you, them people who do donate your ears to my voice, that if Buckingham Palace is going to cost £369 million of taxpayers' money, what changes or improvements should they make to it? Jacob Johansson said that they should repaint it with yellow stars on a blue background, £350 million. Change the Brexit bus to say the EU money is to be spent on the royal family instead, £19 million. The people of Britain have spoken. Lovely, lovely idea, Jacob. Uh, Jonathan Allison says that they should just turf out the current tenants or occupiers. And quite a few of you said that, actually. Uh... Similarly, At Prinny Chance said that we should turn it into a People's Court of Justice. Uh, maybe then the CSA victims will get the justice they deserve. Oh, and uh, those living within Buckingham Palace should be kicked out on the streets for a while and let them feel hardship for once. Uh, Wayne Williams says uh, it would be cheaper to rebuild all of Buckingham Palace in Lego. I'd use Lego. Uh, Sarah Marie Capaldi says that one room gets turned into a ball pit or a bouncy castle, or they turn half of it into a huge retro laser quest. Do you remember those? Of course I do. That would be amazing. Could you imagine all the nooks and crannies that you'd have to hide? And all that reflective jewellery shit would make it really dangerous. Uh, SJJC16 also says uh, replace the whole thing with a massive bouncy castle and I do like that idea uh, particularly because in particularly high winds it means Buckingham Palace could end up absolutely anywhere in the country which would redirect tourism to that area and possibly change the economic system. I mean if anything if if you want to have a northern powerhouse that could be the very best way. Uh, At Sarah Bonetto, who's a brilliant comedian, check her out. Uh, She said, water slides. Doesn't specify where. Uh, I quite like the idea of the change in the guards. Just be, uh, guards have to water slide in. Also, I really like the idea of the royal whee. Um... At T Durbo says, uh, spend it on barbecue firelighters and briquettes and set fire to it. Do it on New Year's Eve. Big Ben and Dizzy Rascal soundtrack. Actually, not only would that save £369 million in refurbishing, it'd also save all the fireworks money on New Year's Eve. It's a very clever plan. Uh, At David Whittam, very similar to my idea, said turn it into an Airbnb pad. Um, At Ethan D Loris said, uh, Queenland. Replace all mirrors with funhouse mirrors. Waltz it in the dining hall and glue the London Eye to the roof. Uh, Kevin Tangible says kids should be able to play on the tennis court, when I'm going to Victoria after the works Christmas do I'll need to use the shitter. Uh, He then added that last year after the Christmas do I pissed on the Queen's saplings in St James's Park so in this way I'd be doubly progressive. Uh, So doing very well there Kevin, Uh, on the same stance as uh, Tony Robinson who I believe recently uh, announced that he had to wee on one of the trees within Buckingham Palace. So uh, Kevin you're you're due to be on television very soon I'm sure. at JL Searl89 says, turn all the unused rooms into social housing and community projects. Um, at Sam Phillips13 says, we should try renaming it the Fathers for Justice Balcony. Don't encourage them, Sam. Uh, at Tilt My hat says, why has it all been left so long? Pimlico Plumbers isn't exactly far away. They could have sorted it out ages ago. Very good point. Uh, at Tread says, convert it into rent-free flats for the homeless. At FluffLogic says, mount speakers, lights, and a giant disco ball on the roof and used for every changing of the guard. Easy and incredibly funky as well. At Real Neil Turner says, two totalizers. Uh, one shows all spend in palace. Two estimates the country's income from royal brand. A digitized queen smiles or frowns accordingly. Then we've got two really nice ideas, at underscore Adenroo, ad, adenru. I don't know what that is. Uh, says, fill it with Syrian refugees, terribly inefficient way to spend £360 million, but would really grind Farage's gears. Uh, and at uh, Alkay, Alkay agrees and says we could solve the refugee crisis by putting them in there. Excellent work. Uh, more from Chris says, I've seen grand designs, if this doesn't go over budget or involve a structural glass wall, I'll eat my hat. Uh, My favourite one from Mr M Marsh, who I hope to get as a guest on this at some point, he's brilliant. Um, He said, install glass walls like we do for pet ant colonies or zoos. They're basically very expensive pets the country owns anyway. How lovely would that be? Just lots of people watching them feed and go to the loo and there'd be big signs up saying don't feed the royals. It'd be brilliant. Oh say can you see, it has all gone. To shine. So this section, temporarily called Thank Fuck for the Atlantic, is going to be Parpol Bro's regular look at the US as it enters the era of Trump. And while there's over 50 days till President-elect Donald Trump is inaugurated, there's already questions as to if he'll make it that far without being impeached, because so far he's burrowing so far into possible impeachment, he's basically through the hairy peach skin bit and hugging a pit. Last week, Trump met in his office at Trump Tower with three Indian business partners who are building a Trump-branded luxury apartment complex south of Mumbai. They also met with Ivanka and Eric Trump, his kids, who are going to be handling Donald's business while he's in office. So there's questions about if Trump is already using the presidency to boost his business. Even more so when you consider he's trying to get security clearance for Eric and Ivanka in the White House, even though he could justifiably use it as time not have to see his kids. And Ivanka joined him when he met Japanese President Shinzo Abe. And when the Argentine president called up Donald to congratulate him on his election win, they also discussed an office bill that Trump has been trying to plan in Buenos Aires. So no signs at all that Trump is going to separate business and politics. And while that's not illegal for a US president, it does raise concerns about business influences on his presidential decisions. And it also goes against absolutely everything Trump said about draining the swamp. Though I suppose at the bottom of the swamp is that really sticky, shitty mud and several very confused reptiles, so maybe it totally makes sense. However, one thing that may be extremely problematic is that the Trump International Hotel in Washington invited representatives from local embassies to an event after the election results to encourage them to use the hotel when leaders of their countries visit the area. George W. Bush's ethics lawyer spoke to the website ThinkProgress and said that that activity will violate the ambulance cause of the Constitution under the title of Nobility Clause on Trump's first day in office unless he sells that hotel by January the 20th. Violation could cause either impeachment or for a rival hotel to sue the crap out of it. Which, to be fair, would make the most fun inauguration ever, right? I mean, Trump swears in, then immediately has to swear out again, and then he goes on Twitter and probably swears an awful lot more. It's not surprising that Donald's going to be as transparent as the brick wall he'll never build when you consider his business past of refusing to pay workers, hiring undocumented workers, defrauding customers and likely bribing Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi in 2013 with a $25,000 donation to her campaign at the same time her office was about to investigate him for alleged fraud. Hmm. And on Friday, Trump boasted about how he avoided going to court over allegations of fraud regarding Trump University with a $25 million payout, which is a fraction of what he would have paid out if he was found guilty. Not only that, but after saying throughout his campaign that he'd never ever settle, it seems he realised that business settlements like that are fully tax deductible, so essentially he's profited by screwing over working Americans who are conned into studying at his sham university. Again, not sure about draining any swamp, but he's definitely unashamedly taken a lot of Americans to the cleaners. Trump has named Jeff Sessions as Attorney General in charge of the Department of Justice. And if you think, wow, Jeff Sessions, that sounds a lot like an acoustic album of someone who's been strumming the same racist tune for 69 years, then you know what, you'd be correct. President Ronald Reagan chose Sessions for a judgeship in 1986, but his nomination never got past committee after he was charged with making racist comments when he said a white lawyer was a disgrace to his race because he defended black clients. So having him in charge of justice in the current climate of racial tensions in America about how the US police treat black people is a bit like hiring a man with a flaming head and a can of gasoline to oversee an initiative to prevent forest fires. Plus, Trump's adviser Chris Kobach wants a national registry to target Muslim immigrants and his newly named national security adviser General Michael Flynn says Islam is a cancer and not a religion. But hey everyone, let's give Trump a chance as we haven't had any stimulus to make good war movies in ages, have we? The US was one of only three nations on Friday to vote against a UN resolution condemning the glorification of Nazism, because the US mission said its overly narrow scope and politicised nature means that it calls for unacceptable limits on the fundamental freedom of expression. I mean really, the US mission could have just said, look, the four years are going to be hard enough anyway, but if we have to try and ban the president from saying anything till he's out of office in 2020, we might be really stuck. Oh, and Trump took to Twitter to take credit for keeping a Ford car factory open in Kentucky, even though the plant wasn't going to close in the first place. So no matter how this whole thing goes, I'm pretty sure Trump will claim in his first 100 days that his policies help the sun rise and the tide move, and all while stopping aliens from invading. Though to be fair, the latter may directly be to do with him, as if aliens have been watching the Earth from above this past year, they've probably seen his election win and decided, nah, fuck it, they're ruining themselves enough without any help from us. And of course, finally, as all the news has reported many times, Donald Trump took offence at Hamilton the Musical after Vice President-elect Mike Pence attended on Friday and the audience booed him as he left, before the cast read a carefully prepared statement at the end of the show to address him. with. Mike Pence has already said that actually he really enjoyed the show and that when the booing happened, he turned to his daughter and said to her, that's the sound of freedom. But still, Donald Trump is demanding that the theater should be a safe space, which makes me wonder if we should invite him to a British panto over Christmas. I mean, I reckon all the booing would make him cry, he'd spend loads of time looking behind him, feeling paranoid, and there's even a chance he might learn some morals. Still, more worrying than the idea that a president who thinks he can defend the US against ISIS but somehow gets flustered by a musical is the notion that now tons of actors everywhere will add radical activists to their CVs as an extra credit, and God knows, they don't need that ego boost. And that's all for this week's show. Uh, I'm going to be back shouting into your brain next week with a look at the Chancellor's autumn statement and probably looking at Donald Trump demanding a safe space from art museums because he went to the Guggenheim and Picasso's woman with the yellow hair wouldn't look him in the eye. Don't forget to review this show on iTunes or Stitcher or even just scroll it across someone's wall in a big pen. I mean, with the really horrific upsetting increase in racist graffiti, the person whose wall it is may just see a review for this show as a relief and start listening. You never know. Uh, do tell others to listen to this show if you think they'll like it. And don't forget, you can sponsor this show via the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash bro. This week's show was brought to you by the number 1 billion, which is how many stars fake news site Liberty Writers News gave this podcast. Yeah, they definitely, they really, they really did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Totes real. Totes.